Hello and welcome to Actuarial People with myself, James Turner. I'm excited to be launching a brand new podcast where each week I'll be speaking with the UK actuary. My aim is to give you, the listener, greater insight into the people behind the profession and their personal career journeys. So we'll cover things like why and how they became an actuary, what they do on a day-to-day basis, how they balance work and study with life, any specialisms they've developed, and how their role has evolved over time. So whether you're an actuary yourself, or you're aspiring to become one in the future, welcome and enjoy. Please welcome to Actuarial People, Lloyd Richards. Hello, nice to meet you. How are you doing? Yeah, very well, thank you. Very, very busy week, but cracking on yourself. Yeah, good. It's uh, well, it's just started raining here, but um, it's been a good week so far. And yeah, very interested to have this conversation. Most of my, not all, but a lot of my guests to date are pensions actuaries and you're in insurance. So something a bit different for, for people to um, to get a feel for. And uh, yeah, I wondered if we could start there, actually, if you could give the listeners a feel for who you are and what you do today, and then we'll go back to the beginning and work forwards. Absolutely, yeah. So I'd say my role is actually even even broader than insurance these days. Um, so I work in, in risk management and risk consulting. Um, so many of my clients are insurers, probably about 80% of my, my client base is insurers, but I also work across asset management and sometimes even outside of financial services as well. Um, I've helped consultancies um, with, with their risk management protocols. I've also developed an interest in sustainability and climate change over the last few years and so I've taken my career down that direction. Um, and that's quite an industry agnostic problem. Um, as you see in many things, financial services tends to be at the forefront. Um, they bear the brunt of the regulation, regulatory pressure. Um, so they're the ones who are doing things first, but the same solutions can be applied to many different companies out there. So my client base is broadening very far outside of the traditional actuarial sphere. Fantastic. I'm sure we can get stuck into to lots of that later. I'll start where I always do, which is asking you to cast your mind back to where you were or, or how you discovered that actuaries existed. Sure. So I studied Morse at Warwick. Uh, It's mathematics, operational research, stats and economics. I think somewhere between 60 and 80 percent of my cohort ended up becoming actuaries. Um, I was one of the rare few who was on that course having never really heard of an actuary. Um, So I I learned from my colleagues on all my course mates. They were all seeking to do it and, and really excited about it. And that was why they'd chosen the course. I'd chosen the course because it looked interesting and had some great maths and work as a great university. And I, I enjoyed my visit there. Um, so it was sort of around first year, second year of university that I found out what actuaries were. Um, I think by the time I left university, I'd met maybe two actuaries who had come to do presentations, but I still can't say I really knew what an actuary was um, until I started applying for jobs. Do you think those around you who had already decided they wanted to be an actuary, did they know what it was or they just thought they wanted to be one? I think they had a slightly better idea than I did, certainly. Um, there, there were a lot of people who chose the course because it offered exemptions from the exams. And I think they'd done the level of research of realising there's exams you have to do later, which was something I I didn't know until sort of around third year time. Um, so they, they definitely had a bit more research. But I think genuinely know what university knows really what an actuary is and what they do. And it's quite a varied job as well. Um, So I don't really know what many pensions actuaries do. I started my career there 10 years ago, but only did two years in pensions. Um, So there's plenty of pensions actuaries where I don't really know what they do. Um, There's investment actuaries where I don't know what they do. So it's, it's a broad and varied thing. And I don't think anyone can really say they know fully what an actuary does until they've done it themselves. Yeah. 
So how so you started in 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 pensions? Was that was that just by luck or how how did that come about? Uh, it was the the first company that offered me a job. Um, <laughs> so I I actually teach at university now and I advise my students when they're applying for jobs of obviously really care and pick your targets, but at the same time. If someone offers you a job, you might just want to take that job um, rather than wait around for your your top choice to, to get get up to speed. Um, so I I was offered um, two interviews uh, with Barnett Waddingham, which is a pensions consultancy, and Hiscox, which is an insurance company. And I was through to the final round with both um, Barnett Waddingham's. I went through, they made an offer to me and they said, you have a week or we're going to rescind this offer. Uh, and the final round with Hiscox was about two weeks later. So I called up Hiscox and said, is there any way you can interview me sooner? They said no. I called up Barnett Waddingham and said, is there any way you can wait an extra couple of weeks? And they said no. So I accepted their offer. <laughs> um, r- rather than taking the risk of getting through the final round again, I thought it was a, a more prudent thing to do. Yeah. Fair enough. And do, do you remember your sort of first few weeks and months in that role at Barton Waddingham? How was that? Oh, gosh. Um, it was an interesting time. Um, learning so much so fast, I think, was was the key thing there. Um, you know, you, you study for three years at university and you think you know everything and then you start work and you realise you know absolutely nothing. Um, and relative to the on-the-job learning that you're going to be doing, your degree teaches you the very basics um, but it doesn't teach you what it's like to actually talk to clients. Um, in my first few weeks, I got a call from someone on a pension scheme client of ours who wanted help understanding the way their pension scheme worked. Um, and that's that's terrifying to someone who's two or three weeks into a job having to help this person sort of understand their benefits that they're entitled to. Um, so there's so much stuff that I, I just wasn't expecting and, and had to learn very quickly, but it was a very supportive culture there. Um, it was an absolutely fantastic company to learn at and, and pass exams at, um, really sort of valued the study days. Uh, and there were there were some fantastic people to learn off as well. Yeah. Sounds very early. Was was that sort of engineered? They wanted you, Barnett Waddingham wanted you to be on that call for experience or did they just... Client picked up the phone. Um, so that was a, uh, I'm trying to remember exactly how that happened. So I think we had a, a policy. I seem to remember we had a policy. This was still in the days of, of desk phones and desktop computers. Um, and people could ring sort of through to our, there was quite a large pensions admin team there. And people could ring through to that with questions that would then sometimes go to the actuaries. Um, and if everyone was busy on their phones and a phone rang for someone who was busy, you, you had to pick it up. Um, that was the rule in the office of even if it wasn't your phone ringing, if no one else picked it up, you had to. So I think it was the person sitting next to me who was a few more years into their career who was actually supposed to be asked this question, but they were busy. So I picked it up. Um, and there you go. How did you handle it? Um, I told him I needed to do a bit more research and we'd get back to him. <laughs> I, I knew the answer, but I wanted to check with the person who actually was the, the scheme actuary and knew all of the details in and out. Um, so I, I went and made sure and got back to this person rather than risk giving them wrong advice. Yeah. And, and, and what were your sort of impressions of the work? Were you enjoying pensions? Obviously, you moved, moved away from it later on. but Yeah. Um, yeah yes and no. I was really enjoying the work of an actuary. I was really enjoying sort of engaging with, with difficult maths and running models and, and getting involved in all of that. I think where I started to get a little bit bored is I I really like solving new problems. Um, and Barnett Waddingham is a, a fantastic pensions company with, I think, about 1,500 employees. And it's been going for several decades now. There's not really a problem in pensions that's been come across that they haven't solved in the past. Um, So every time you found a really interesting problem, the solution was always to figure out what had been done 20 years ago when the exact same problem came up and use that as your guidance. Mm. 
And whilst that's really, really useful and, and made the company very successful, it wasn't giving me the challenge that I wanted of trying to solve something new. Um, so I was able to apply for an internal transfer there. Um, there are, they are a pensions consultancy, but they had a very small, at the time at least, insurance consulting team. Um, and I made a transfer over to that insurance team that I think was about 10 to 15 people uh, size at the time. Um, and I worked there for, for four years. I definitely found the problems a lot more interesting simply because I had to solve them for myself rather than ask for help. How did you know that would be the case? What sort of told you that, yeah, making this internal move would give me more of what I'm looking for? Um, in parts, it was an act of faith. Um, I had to had to guess that it would be the right thing for me. I mean, it was obviously because it was an internal move. I could talk to all the people in the team quite openly and honestly about it. Um, someone had made the move, same move a couple of years before me. So he was in in the same office as me, um, the Barnett Waddingham Amersham office, moved the London office to the life insurance team. So I spoke to him sort of at length about what the move had been like and, and how it had changed his career. Um, and he sort of found things a lot more interesting after moving. So that, that was sort of the, the key decision point for me. Mm. There's obviously lots of people in pensions, particularly that sort of time really two three years in starting to think should I move to to insurance for different reasons um but I guess they probably don't know what they're in for until they actually make the move and then find out so with the benefit of hindsight how, how would you explain to someone two or three years in the differences between in this case working in pensions consulting and and life insurance sure I mean Mathematically, it's pretty much the same. Um, an annuity is the same as a pension. Then there's a few other life insurance products as well out there that you need to learn about. But it's all sort of the same long-term discounted cash flow modelling, unlike general insurance, where the math is actually very, very different. Um, some of us might remember triangles from the exams, and that's probably all we know about general insurance. Um, so, so the actual core mathematical actuarial work is very, very similar. Where I think it became more interesting for me is who your clients are. So with pensions consulting, your clients are trustees of pension schemes. Um, so let's say Tesco has a pension scheme. That pension scheme is managed by trustees who are part of Tesco or nominated by the members of the pension scheme. So there might be the chief financial officer of Tesco there. Um, there might be some very senior, very financially educated people, but there'll also just be some senior Tesco employees, um, people nominated by the members because they think they take care of their interests really well. Might be you know, a cashier who's been there for, for 30, 40 years um, and people just really respect that person. So the the mix of people in a, a trustee group is, is very different to insurance where your clients are typically going to be people like the chief risk officer, like the chief finance officer, like the chief actuary, um, people who have a, a very core financial background who really understand the problems you're engaging with. And that, in a way, makes the problems more interesting because they can solve the easy things for themselves. They'll only come to you with the really hard stuff. Um, and that means you get to sort of really work with a, a much higher, I was going to say higher caliber of people, but people who already know a lot. Um, I found a lot of the job of a pensions consultant was explaining really complicated things in a, in a really easy to understand way, because that's what you have to do to, to help the trustees understand things. With insurance, they already understand the really complicated stuff. Um, so you don't have to do that sort of translation piece. You can stay in that sort of complicated, difficult language. Um, and that can be much more exciting when you're trying to solve problems. And what was it? Did it feel, obviously you had built up a couple of years experience only a couple of years but still getting more senior in pensions did it feel like you were starting almost as if you were a graduate again from square one when you moved over 
Hi guys, we'll get straight back to the conversation in a second. Just a quick reminder that when I'm not recording podcasts, I specialise in helping pensions actuaries with their career moves, and I'd love to help you when the time comes to explore your options. I work with people at all levels, whether you have a couple of years' experience through to senior positions. My approach is different to most recruiters. I started my own business last year and work alone, which means I have zero pressure to hit targets and can just focus on giving the best possible help and advice. So whether you're thinking of making a move now, or would just like to understand your options for the future, please get in touch via LinkedIn or email james at turnerperkins.com. Back to the show. Absolutely, yes. Um, so when I joined, I think the team had a, a graduate at the time, and then it had someone who'd been there one year. I'd been there two years. Um, I felt more experienced than the graduates because I knew how the business worked. It was the same systems we were using in, in pensions, um, same people, same phones, etc. But I wasn't as advanced as the guy who'd only been there a year when I'd been there too. Um, he knew a lot more about insurance than I did. Um, so I had to, yeah, I had to re-educate myself and, and learn quite fast in that. But fortunately, it was a, an early enough move that it wasn't a massive step back. It was sort of one, one year, one and a half year step back, it felt like. What's consulting like on the life insurance side? Is it, do you spend more time at the desk doing calculating, uh, sorry, calculating things or, or, or is there a large consulting element? Yeah, it, it depends on sort of what the, the product you're selling is. Um, if you are doing sort of outsourced technical stuff, so you might be helping uh, clients with their reserving, with their pricing, then that's that's very technical, um, very desk-based work with the occasional presentation. Um, so a lot of the stuff that I was doing after I made that move was, was very desk-based. Um, you'd sort of have quarterly reserving meetings with clients, but other than that, you were, were sat at home doing the work. Um, the, the work that I do now or that I moved into after Barnett Waddingham is much more akin to management consulting, um, where there's a lot less sort of desk-based technical work to be doing and a lot more meetings, presentations and, and discussing things to try and actually get to the root of the problem. Um, again, it's about solving difficult problems that companies haven't been able to solve themselves. Um, whereas in the, the first case where you're doing outsourced reserving, it might simply be they don't have enough resource to, to do that work themselves or they're a small enough company that they don't have a dedicated actuary to do it. Um, whereas if you're, you're in a more management consulting role, it's, it's genuinely that they don't have the expertise to solve the problem themselves or there are political issues within the company that need sort of an external expert to come and, and ride roughshod over almost. Um, and, and that just kind of makes it a lot more again, I think I keep coming back to this theme, it's a lot more interesting to work with challenging problems that nobody else has been able to solve. And that's why I've tried to, to push my career in that direction. Yeah. So before before we move on to your your current role, what was your experience like with the exams? Because uh, you, you sent me a few notes and I think you qualified in 2016, um, but your description was not the best at exams, but plugged away and got there eventually. But then yeah. Yeah, six years, it's not... It's not too bad. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's sort of around average. Isn't it? So I'd never been the best at exams. So my course at university offered all the exemptions if you did well enough, and I picked up none of them. Okay. Uh, I, I scraped a 2-1 by the narrowest of margins. I, I can still remember my final result because it was 60.3%. Um, <laughs> so very, very close to being a 2-2 there. I was definitely sort of marked by several additional people just to make sure I was above the threshold. Yeah. Um, when it came to the exams, I, I sat three in the first sitting and passed all three. And I thought, great, this is easy, and tried three again the next sitting and failed all three, um, which I think is, is quite a common theme amongst actuaries. Um, you know, it's the first time you really fail a maths exam, and it's quite quite terrifying. Yeah. Um, and then my, my results after that were mixed. I passed 
most exams first or second time. Um, and then there was one I got very, very stuck with, and it wasn't until the sixth attempt that I passed that. So that proved a bit of a blocker in my journey. Um, and then a, a couple of the later ones, it was second attempt got me there. So it's it, it's one of those things where, yeah, I, it, I know people who do worse. I know people who do a lot better. I, I would say I'm about average. I got lucky on a couple of exams. Um, what you find with the later specialist exams is if you've been working in a, a specific area, sometimes they will ask questions about that area. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had recently, when I sat SA2, which is the specialist life insurance exam, um, I had been doing a lot of work in the bulk annuity market, doing essentially covenant risk reviews of the bulk annuity companies. So we, we would go in um, and sort of analyze all the risks this company was facing, how they were dealing with those risks and how that compared to the other bulk annuity companies. And then I sat my SA2 paper and there was a single question worth 80% of the marks that was describe the risks that bulk annuity companies face and how they mitigate them. And I opened the paper and I just thought there is maybe one other person in the country who can answer answer this question better than I can and that's my boss so <laughs> I knew immediately that I passed it um so that was a that was just a lucking out in that one because I I'd said it that same exam six months earlier and I got questions that I knew nothing about in life insurance uh, and I tried to I did all right I, I got a close fail um just from the, the core reading and stuff I'd learned but when you get a question that's so related to what you've been doing it's it's a huge help yeah that's is that how exams should be? Should it should it have that luck element? Or? Um, no, but there's no real way you can avoid that. Is there? Mm. If you want to make the exams actually about the the real problems that actuaries are solving, um, I, I'm sure they probably thought this was niche enough that there'd be very few people who are you know really working in that sector. So it's a, it's a good test. Yeah, um, they do often try and make up sort of it, it, unrealistic examples that allow you to test the knowledge sort of without someone having an advantage. So I remember in in one paper, um, there was an example of a, a company that had been set up offering, offering coconut insurance. <laughs> um, so if, if you're going on holiday to a tropical island, you take out coconut insurance in case a coconut falls off a tree and hits you on the head. And that was the only product they solved. And you had to sort of talk about the risks for that. Now, obviously, that doesn't exist in the real world. So there's there's no one working for a coconut insurer who gets an exam advantage there. Yeah. Um, so they, they try and do a lot of that as well. But sometimes they, they do like to ask questions about the real world. You know, there was one that my student sat recently that had a deep dive into um, inflation in general insurance and that was something we'd been working on with a client so huge advantage there but it's it's important to be able to test the, the actual knowledge as well and the, and the one you got stuck on the one that you you took six attempts with was that yeah. similar reasons wrong topic or was it more exam technique or something else that was exam technique um so that was it was ct5 in my day i can't remember what it translates to under the current system um but that was it was a speed test um, I was doing all of the past papers and practice papers, and if I spent four hours over it, I could get between 90 and 100% with the occasional error dropping marks on. In three hours, I could not pass it. Um, and I tried doing the same things very foolishly, tried to do the same technique over and over again, failed narrowly every single time because I simply ran out of time on the paper. The key thing that made the difference was something one of my, it was someone junior to me actually who, who gave me this piece of advice. Uh, and it was a great piece of advice was to put sticky labels in the actuarial tables that are provided um, because there are three or four pages in there that you keep coming back to throughout this exam. And it saved me probably about five or six minutes just knowing exactly where those tables were. And that was enough to answer another question. And that got me over the pass mark. Oh, brilliant. There we go. So, um, so you qualified in in twenty sixteen, and that's was that just before you 
you moved, you left Barnet Waddingham, or was that just after? Um, that was after. So I left Barnet Waddingham uh, April, I think, 2016, and qualified in the, the September sitting that year. Okay. And, and, and what was the sort of reasoning behind moving on? Um, again, it was interest in finding a new challenge and, and finding something that I thought would be quite exciting. Um, so, again, not to sort of insult Barnett Wellingham, they're a fantastic company, really enjoyed my time there. Um, still have many, many friends from there who I still go on holiday with quite regularly. So, that yeah. sort of shows how tight knit we were. Um, but the clients that we were getting there in the insurance team were pretty small. Um, there was no one that, there's a lot of friendly societies, no one that sort of big, brand house name that everyone knows that you know you can say oh that was my client and people will be impressed by um and i had a coffee with a guy from a company called baxter bruce which had six employees and their clients included aviva lv canada life um legal and general i think one of theirs as well lloyd's banking group so real household names that somehow these six people were good enough and had a good enough brand to be able to attract and do work for and i just wanted to see how they were doing it um, and learn from them. I, I'm sure the, I, I, well, when I left, I wasn't thinking the work would necessarily be any different or they were any better than the people I was working with, but they had found a niche that these big companies were really interested in and I wanted to understand that. Did, did you check out other companies at the same time or it was just that one? No, it was one of those where I wasn't looking to move. Hmm. Um, I, I think at various times throughout your career, you might look to move and start to contact headhunters. I've never actually got to that point and generally i i will hear what's out there because it's useful to benchmark something against your own salary against your own experience level and see if there's you know anything really special um but this was just a, a coffee with a guy that i'd met um, a couple of times before at a conference uh, it turned out he was looking for a new actuary um and, and wanted to chat me up essentially about the role so wasn't looking to leave but as soon as we started talking i realized i wanted to work for him yeah and how did it feel going from quite well, a much bigger company in comparison to, to being the seventh person. Um, it, it was terrifying. <laughs> so it was it was a very, very different vibe. Um, yeah, I was employee number seven. They worked in a, a shared office. So this was, I think WeWork was just, just sort of making a name around this time, but this wasn't a WeWork office. This was a, a similar sort of setup where you share the office with loads of other people. Yeah. So they interviewed me in these resplendent, beautiful meeting rooms and then I showed up for work on the first day and it was a, a box, probably about the size of the room that I'm in now, if I show around, <laughs> with all seven of us in there. If you wanted to make a phone call, you had to step outside the room into the corridor because that was the only place you could do it. Um, it was very, very different. There was no no HR. Um, I remember one day I was on a, a conference call with a client. Um, and again, this is, this is pre-Teams, pre-Zoom and all those tools. So we used a conference call service where you had to top it up with money and, and use that. Um, and it ran out of money midway through the call and no one was around. So I just had to get my debit card out and top it up. Um, and that's not the kind of thing you do at a, a company with a thousand people. But when there's seven employees, that, that is the kind of thing you have to do. Um, but it was it was fabulous. It was it was again a really obviously close knit group of people um, because there were only seven of us. Still very good friends with everyone from there. Um, we all had to do everything. So as well as doing the actual work and delivery to clients, so I was I was one of three actuaries there. The other four were sort of more generalist risk consultants. Um, so as well as delivering the work to clients, we had to do the marketing, we had to write articles, um, we had to create our own website, we had to create our own training materials, sort of everything was stuff done by the actual consultants. Um, and that was was quite fun. 
was it long hours were you to do all of these things were you was it yeah i mean so i think consulting is always lumpy um people often as i, said, I teach at university and students often ask what the, the difference is consultants i think are seen to work longer hours than industry i would say sometimes we do but often we don't um we, we tend to go through peaks and troughs of business. Sometimes we win lots of work and have to work very long hours to deliver it on time. Sometimes there is a bit of a quiet spell, quiet spell often when our clients go on holiday sort of over the summer and again over Christmas. Um, and then there's been times where I've sort of been leaving the office at two, three o'clock every day. Uh, this is back when we used to be in the office, um, just because there wasn't really all that much to do. Um, or I could go home and, you know, do some, I'd always fill my time, you know, I'd do reading of legislation or try and produce some marketing materials or article or propose stuff to the actuary or, or all that kind of stuff that you can do around your job. Um, but there's been times, you know, early on in that, that time where there just wasn't client work to do. Um, so unless you're one of the, the people who's out trying to win more client work, you sort of kick your heels a bit and you you develop some internal systems, you prepare yourself for the next client, you, you read subjects. But if you want to go home early, you can. And what was the nature of the work? Was it different to what you were doing previously? Yeah, so it was risk consulting. Um, this was the first time that I really saw risk consulting as something different from sort of insurance consulting. It's consulting on a subject rather than consulting to a client base. Um, so the company had really made their name off the back of Solvency 2. Um, and there were loads of consultancies doing Solvency 2 stuff and helping with Solvency 2 implementation. They didn't do that. They found a very specific niche, um, which was something called the use test in Solvency 2. Um, so for a little bit of background, uh, Solvency 2 is insurance legislation that sets various things that, that insurance companies have to do. One of those things is how much capital they have to hold. And there's something called the standard formula where the European insurance agency has sort of looked across all the common risks that insurance companies face and tried to calibrate what a two, one in 200 year shock might look at those each of those risks. So what might a one in 200 year mortality shock look like? Well, they've looked back throughout history and benchmarks sort of the biggest mortality shocks in the last 200 years, like Spanish flu. Um, this was pre-COVID, so they, they wouldn't have included COVID, but that sort of thing they looked at um, to try to estimate, you know, one in every 200 years, we get this kind of shock to mortality. Do the same for expense risk, for lapse risk, for inflation risk, and all those things, and come up with this formula that brings it all together and allows for the correlations between those risks. So insurance companies can use that approach to, to calculate their capital, or they can develop their own model called the internal model where they spend their own time doing exactly the same thing that I was done, um, but looking at their own specific risks and thinking, OK, well, how will these risks affect us differently from the average company that the, the European agency has tried to replicate? Um, and that that's great because that allows you to actually hold money that, that makes more sense to you as a company. Uh, but the regulator was very concerned that companies might sort of try and cheat on this and come up with an internal model that just gives you a lower number than the standard formula. So they had a very clever way of, of getting around this rather than just saying, well, the num number has to be bigger or you have to do specific things with your model. They said, you have to prove to us that you are using this lower capital number in your business decision making. And that way, companies won't cheat on it because if they're, they're using it for you know, their dividend payments or various other things and decisions they're making that are strategic to the business, they want that number to be really, really right. Um, so the, the regulator came up with a, a bunch of different sort of requirements that you have to meet to show that you're, you're using the model appropriately. And Baxter Bruce, the company that I, I worked for, had sort of carved out its niche in helping companies meet those requirements and showing that they met the use test. So that was sort of the, the bread and butter core of the work that they were doing for some of these big companies. And then they'd grown up around that into sort of more 
risk management framework work and, and helping companies sort of tr- uh, change and, and understand their approach to risk in a more comprehensive um, way. Uh, and that sort of stayed as our, the core of our business over the years since then as well. Okay, so you said earlier that what was missing from from pensions was the ability to solve new problems. So where did that come in? Was that was it the case that each individual client had their own challenges in developing their internal model and that's what got you going? Or is it is it more in-depth than that? Where, where does that challenge come from? No, that's exactly it, yeah. It, it's the case of each each client has its own unique model and setup. It's got its own product, its own way of doing business, and, and that means every model is unique. Um, and the only people who really know the ins and outs of that model work at that insurance company. So you get to talk to some really interesting people who've done all the coding. There was then um, one client that I worked with there that was a startup. So they were they'd raised capital and they were trying to um, launch a completely new insurance product, uh, which was kind of like bulk annuities, but to buy up um, something called PPOs, which is another sort of long term insurance thing um, that basically people people want this thing off their books. They thought, well, we can set up a company that takes all of these things off um, and we can manage the risk in aggregate better than anyone could do having a small number of PPOs. Um, so I helped them sort of develop their first modeling. Um, which was really interesting because it was sort of a multi-purpose model that had to be useful for their own business plan, um, but also sent to the regulator so the regulator could test their business plan. So it had to be very robust, um, but also they used it to uh, go and talk to investors and, and have funding conversations. So it had to sort of show potential sort of futures and how much return you could generate on if you invested in this company. Um, so it's just a completely unique kind of problem that nobody, none of my colleagues had ever solved before. Um, I'm sure there's probably someone out there who's done something like that for that product, but it's it's unlikely I'd find them. So I have to solve the problem myself. That's what I find, find fascinating. Okay. And j- just for my information, I'll cut it out if this is a silly question, but I, <laughs> I spent most of my experience has been in pensions. I did spend a, a few years on our life insurance team, um, both perm and, and contract. I say our life insurance team. I don't work there anymore. Um, <laughs> but um, so some of that was around about the time that Solvency 2 was new. Everyone was scrambling around to decide what approach to take and to, to get their models built. Is, is that is that done now and you've moved on and you're doing different things or are you still, what what's... It's- so there's, there's still there's still stuff to do on Solvency too. Um, companies are still developing these models. There's a lot of companies who sort of develop what's called a partial internal model, which is halfway between the standard formula and doing their own thing. Um, and over time, they can find that actually they've got a new risk or one of their risks has grown as they've sold more products and they need to develop another sort of internal model component there. So there's there's still Solvency two compliant stuff to be done. Um, the reason why it's it's sort of less interesting and uses less consultants is it's very much business as usual work now. Um, it's not a new challenge that anyone needs to to be brought in and read a load of legislation to solve. The people at the insurance companies know what they're doing with it. They can make the changes as needed and, and run with it. Um, so a lot of the, the sort of consulting work has died out there. Yeah. Now, I, I do remember Baxter Bruce as a, as a brand, but the, what happened? They were acquired or... Yes, yeah, so I'm amazed you remember. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think I knew what they did at the time. Just <laughs> no, fair enough. So, I mean, as I said, it was it was six people seven when I joined, and they they did have a really good brand. Uh, it's amazing how many people knew who they were. Um, but yeah, they were acquired by Crow, um, which is the company I now work for. In it was about six months after I joined, so it might still have been 2016, um, maybe 2017 when it when it all went through. Um, so it was it was nice to sort of have that 
almost startup situation for a few months and have that team of seven people. But it was also quite nice to suddenly have HR again and have marketing again and have those things taken off my plate by actual competent professionals who knew what they were doing. <laughs> um, but 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 the team was still the team. There weren't other people there that then joined. The, so they, they brought together a, a few other people. So it was actually, I, I work for Crow UK now, but it was Crow US that acquired Baxter Bruce. And they were looking to set up a global risk consultancy. So they already had a small team in the UK um, and they thought the best way to grow that team was to buy a company that had a brand um, that had people who were being very successful in the space they wanted to capture and bring those two teams together. So we, we were about, I think Baxter Bruce had grown to maybe nine people by that point. And then I think another six or seven who were already with Crow US came and joined us. We, we moved together into very nice offices that Crow paid for um, and sort of went from there. And uh, and you're you're still there today, so obviously you're you're loving what you're doing. Is is there anything yes. else that we haven't talked about that's 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 keeping you there? Um, it's 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 the the excitement of the work. So it's I mean it's Crow UK now that I'm with. Um, so we we all got put through an internal transfer a few years back for, for various operational reasons. Um, you know it just makes sense for us to be part of the UK company. Um, so what's keeping me here right now is um, about three years ago now I started getting involved in climate work. Okay, um, and that wasn't necessarily by design it's something that's always been sort of an interest of mine but i didn't think i would take my career that way i mean there's not that many sort of climate change actuaries out there uh, there's a few sort of prominent ones but but not it's not you know a, a common career path um but we were helping a client with it was essentially a, a transformation and, and project management piece of work um where they were this was an asset manager and they were doing a lot of climate change work and sort of gearing up their their climate risk capacity and understanding sort of the potential risks they were facing um and they just wanted someone to help sort of manage and run that program of work um so one of our transformation consultants went in to do that and just just by chance sort of heard that they really needed some very technical very modeling heavy people and someone had suggested that an actuary might be useful for doing this um, and so our, our transformation person said, I know an actuary and, and brought me along. Um, I ended up spending two years with that client, which is the longest project I've ever done um, end to end. Um, and realized that was what I wanted to do for my career. Um, it's it's absolutely fascinating. It feels really meaningful. It's helping to solve problems that there aren't really standard solutions to. It's about the future rather than about looking back at the past and seeing what happened last time. Um, so it's it's been really fascinating to me. And I mean, it's a, there's a huge amount of work to be done and a huge amount that actuaries can get involved with. Um, so I was initially there just helping them through a regulatory exercise where the Bank of England wanted them to do a stress test on their asset book of just understanding, you know, if various climate change scenarios happen, what might this look for your asset base? So I helped them with that. Um, and then I, I did a very good job, I think, with that because they asked me to stay a while longer and help them develop some reporting off the back of that that they could put out to the public. Um, so I did that. And then I stayed sort of another year to develop a suite of internal tools that they could use to support their internal reporting and management and start to use some of this information sort of in their investment decision making process. Um, so it was sort of a, a snowballing piece of work that, that you know, had a, I think the letter of engagement that, that I worked on still said I was helping them through the regulatory exercise <laughs> two years later on. Um, but it's, it was just, I was learning every single day, um, part of a team there where I was learning from absolutely fascinating people that their head of climate was a brilliant guy and someone I'm still in touch with to this day, even though he's moved on to another company now. Um, so I still, still see him quite regularly. 
Um, and then off, off the back of that work and a few other projects we started winning, we realized there was a real need for clients to, to get to grips with this. Um, and so we basically made it one of our solutions. And, and that's the advantage of being at quite a small consultancy or at least a small team within a consultancy is if we spot a, a niche that needs a solution, we can start to develop it. And it's a lot of work to do that. Um, we have to, to develop our own specialisms. We've got someone doing a master's in climate policy. We've got people who've done sort of industry exams, CFA and the like, and, and CESOL, CASL, the Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership. Um, so everyone's gone off and sell exams and learnt and read loads and loads of stuff. Um, and that's positioned us to essentially have a sustainability consulting team. Uh, we also hired a new partner who's a former chief risk and sustainability officer, and that has helped an awful lot um, because he knows everything there is to know about this stuff. Um, so, yeah, what's keeping me at Crow now is I'm doing loads more of something that I really love, um, solving really difficult problems in a really impactful way. Yeah, I hope, I hope this comes through on the audio of the of the podcast. Obviously, I'm looking at you on the screen and it's it's so obvious that you really do genuinely love what you do. And, and I'm sitting here thinking that's because you've worked out what you like and you've followed it. And how easy is that for pe- people to do? It, it sounds like that's exactly what everyone should do. Work out what you're good at, what you're interested in and, and follow that. But sometimes it's right place, right time with the internal move and then meeting oh, someone absolutely. for coffee. And I've, I've got very lucky at several times throughout my career. Even just that climate project was a piece of luck that they needed help at the time when one of our transformation people was in a position to bring me in there. Um, so there's a lot of luck in, in your career for anyone. Um, I think it's quite common amongst actuaries to see that same sort of smiling as they're talking about their jobs, because I think no matter where you are in the actuarial world, generally you're getting paid to sit there thinking about problems that you enjoy thinking about. Um, And to people who are maths geeks like most of us who who love engaging with those problems, that's just fantastic. Someone's going to pay me to do stuff that I I used to do for fun during my A-levels of solving these interesting problems and building models. Um, So that's what I always tell my, my students at university is, you know, if, if you are genuinely interested in the work, you will enjoy it because it is really interesting to do. And, and I've just looked at your notes again. You you, you mm. mentioned finding your niche. I, w- I would I would have thought that one of the barriers is it's not always obvious what else you could be doing. If if you're in a job, this is what you do. There's someone over there that does something slightly different. But is it is it best to do as much as you can to go into the right area while you're when you enter the profession or do you think there are things people can do to try and really work out what what their niche should be and what suits them best? I I think it's absolutely something you can figure out later because you probably don't know going in what you're going to be good at and what you're not, um, especially because that's a a relative question. It's not what are you going to be good at, it's what are you going to be the best person at or at least better than than the average person at. Um, So I think amongst sort of the, the general population, I'm quite a shy, not very outgoing person, but amongst the actuarial population, I'm extremely outgoing and communicative. Um, there's a bit of a stereotype that is, is somewhat true that actuaries aren't necessarily great communicators or, or don't like sort of talking to people. Um, but I, I really do. So that gives me a bit of a niche in that I, I'm very happy sort of going to conferences and talking to over a thousand people about problems I've been solving, um, standing up there and talking to people. It's, it's something I've sort of developed and honed as well. It's not just something that's a, that comes naturally to me, but I've, I've practiced it. Um, one of the reasons I got into teaching is it's it's quite a good challenge to stand in front of an audience of, of 30 or so 18 year old students and try and keep them occupied for an hour without looking at their phones. Yeah. Um, so try to sort of improve my communication ability through that. 
Um, so yeah, I think if, if you look at sort of my career, for example, two years in pensions, four years in life insurance consulting, then a move to, to more risk consulting, which itself has had sort of several different internal moves into different sort of client focuses. Um, I, I've almost chased after things that looked really exciting every time and, and eventually found something that's absolutely perfect fit for me. Um, I think the advice that I would give to actuaries just starting their careers is just talk to everyone. Um, people are really happy to share their experiences, share what's good and bad about their job, because um, every every job has good and bad. There's no sort of perfect job where you're super happy and excited every day. As you said, I enjoy my job and that comes through very clearly. But sometimes I don't want to get out of bed in the morning. Sometimes the work is really hard or keeps me working late at night. And I don't want to do it. Um, there's never going to be a job where that isn't the case. If it wasn't such a challenging job and, and challenging problems to solve they wouldn't pay you very much so that, that's always something you've got to consider um but yeah so as i said i think it's about just talking to everyone you meet in industry um actuaries are are very good at sharing um it's not a, a sort of cutthroat industry where people like to keep knowledge and hoard knowledge for themselves people are really generous with their time um, even if you work for competitors i have people who mentor me at, at various big four consultancies where we're in direct competition and likewise i mentor some of their more junior people and, and who knows one day one of them might come and work for me or i might go and work for one of them um you know the the profession is small and people tend to know each other and will help each other yeah um, i think a great example i have of that is that the teaching that i do at queen mary um so i know you've had one of my colleagues on um from there masim bazata so we share um, first years together. I do the first semester, he does the second semester. And a lot of the, the teaching that we do is done through guest lecturers. So we sort of teach the core professional development topics. Um, but part of what we want to do is give our students a real flavor of what lots of different actuaries do by bringing in people from loads of different backgrounds um, to talk about just basically their, what I'm doing today. What, what's your job been like? What's your progress been like? You know, what are you doing now? Um, and when I first started teaching five years ago, I was really scared that I wouldn't be able to find any guest lecturers to come along to a university in East London, a bit out of the city, to spend an hour of your morning, you know, plus an hour either side commuting, all that time just to talk to some students for a bit. I'm inundated with people who want to come and do it. And it's not just junior people, it's chief risk officers, um, a former president of the IFOA gave a talk to my students. Everyone is so, so generous with their time. And I always have great guests coming to speak to the students. Well, that's good news for me because I can relate to that. <laughs> find find a guest, and I know we've we've had a chat about that um, outside of this. How how did you get into teaching, and, and why did you do it? Um, so I became a career ambassador for the profession quite early on in in my career. I think I was probably about two or three years in. Um, and, I, and I mentioned sort of my, my communication and getting practice in that. And actually, one of the reasons I became a career ambassador, as well as the whole, you know, wanting to give back and, and train up the next generation thing, is I wanted to practice speaking in front of people in a, a very safe environment. You know, if you go along to a, to a conference or a client meeting, these people have paid to see you. You've got to do really well. If you're volunteering your time to go to a school or university and explain what an actuary does, A, you're on very safe ground because you know what you do. But also B, if you mess it up, no one cares. It's not like <laughs> really not the end of the world if you, you completely fluff and fall apart with nerves and, and can't do anything. Yeah. So I just I started doing it as practice, really, you know, practice to stand up in front of a room of 20 people, talk for an hour um, in a, a really safe environment and found that I really enjoyed doing it. Um, I've always had an interest in sort of maths education. So 
once I, I think I'd qualified before I started doing this, I was too busy otherwise, but I, I got involved with a charity um, that basically connects students with um, people in work who are interested in teaching maths. Um, so I teach GCSE and A-level maths through some charities. Um, and I've uh, what I do there is I take students, um, I, I don't take sort of super students who are going to get an A anyway. I tend to take students who want a career where they need to know enough maths but they're not necessarily mathematicians. Um, so at the moment I have one kid who wants to be an architect and one who wants to be a doctor. And they both need to get Bs in maths um, to do those jobs because maths is sort of that, that gatekeeper to a lot of professions. And that's really fun for me because I can start with someone who really struggles and help get them up to a level of competency rather than start with someone who's actually really, really good already and help to refine their approach is not as fun. Um, so I started doing that. We're still doing guest lectures at universities. Uh, I did one at Queen Mary, six seven years ago um and one of the the teaching fellows there was sort of leaving the job and was looking around for people he thought might be a good replacement and asked me if i wanted to do it more permanently uh, so i did nice and then how, i asked masimba the same question but how do you fit all of that in around work <laughs> my job is very understanding um so actually when i did this for the very first time i had to write a business case to my job of why i should be allowed a morning off every week to go and do it um, part of that business case was, well, maybe if I start work at sort of 6am on the mornings that I'm teaching, um, and then I'll just look like I take a long lunch break during the day. Um, but there's also, there's other aspects that I mentioned, the guest lecturers I bring in actually having really good conversations with those people who often work for our clients or our targets is, is a really helpful part of that as well. Um, but yeah, fitting it in is, is, is hard. Um, sometimes you have to, to let certain things drop. Um, I, I know when I have busy periods, so the students that I teach GCSE and A-level maths, they want my time shortly before exams and they don't really want the regular lectures throughout the year. Um, so I'm very happy to, to let those slide when I'm very busy at work, but it's miles away from their exam period and then make up the time in the last month before exams. Um, in terms of the, the university stuff, yeah, it's, it's a very understanding job. It's really helped with um, working from home, actually, because when I started doing it, we were in the office every single day. Um, and this was the one day that I, I sort of worked from home, um, being home, being the university at the time. Um, so the university set me up with an office then, which was, was very helpful as well, because it meant I could talk to clients from there. Um, I don't have that anymore, sadly. <laughs> it was a very nice space. Um, but now it's, you know, now working from home is a lot more common actually from a client perspective they, they have no idea whether i'm on campus or at home as long as i'm doing the work and making the calls then it doesn't matter yeah do you not feel the pressure going back to something you said earlier someone wants to be a doctor someone wants to be an architect do you not feel you're taking on a lot of pressure there by you know they, they might not get a b <laughs> um yeah no they might not and, and i agree teaching does come with its own unique pressures. I think we talk about the, the pressure of the HR profession quite a lot, but teaching is a, a lot of pressure in its own right because you do feel very responsible for the people you can teach. Um, I think the, the way that I handle that and deal with that, certainly with the, the GCSE level students, is they, they either have me as a tutor or they have no one. Now, I'm, I'm doing it through a charity pro bono. Um, it, it's all people who couldn't afford a tutor normally. Um, so the only way sort of is up for them and sometimes they don't get the grades they want and that's that's really sad um, i've actually worked with a, a couple of form students on retakes because they really liked the way i taught but they didn't get the grade they wanted so they wanted to retake and i, I worked with them for another year and then they did get the grade Very nice. um so yeah that that's always really helpful but you know it's it, it's not always possible for someone to uh, I, I guess get to that level you want but they always still improve um, and get better at maths and that's that's something 
Tell us about your involvement with the Worshipful Company of Actuaries. Yeah, so the, the Worshipful Company of Actuaries is a, is a very interesting um, organisation that I'm, I'm part of, uh, and I'm recently joined sort of their, their, um, the PR and comms committee there, so I'm, I'm helping to sort of get the, the name out a little bit better. Um, so going back into sort of very, very ancient history at this point, um, to, to work in the City of London um, in the, the very old days, sort of talking the, I think the, the 1400s, um, it was about when these companies started. Actually, I think some are even older, sort of 1200s. Um, but back then, if you wanted to practice your profession within the city limits, so within the walled city of London, you had to have done an apprenticeship with a worshipful company um, and have a little certificate that says this person is authorised to practice as a, as a baker or as a goldsmith within the city of London. Um, so there's a, a lot of sort of ancient professions that there are worshipful companies of. Around sort of 50, 60 years ago, a lot of modern professions decided they would quite like to do it as well, um, especially where they have a, a strong city link. And so the Worshipful Company of Actuaries was created around, I think we're around number 100 in the the, the order of precedence. So they're, they're, there's an order of precedence, which is sort of from oldest to newest company. So there's the ancient 12 that are the, the really big ones um, that are all the companies that used to, to exist. And you see their sort of emblems everywhere. If you go to the, the Royal Exchange right next to the Bank of England, there's 12 lampposts around a statue of um, Nelson or Wellington or one of those guys. I forget which which military hero it is. There's 12 lampposts and each lamppost has a, a livery sigil, one for the grocers, one for the goldsmiths, one for the merchant tailors. I, I forget what the ancient 12, um, but they're, they're sort of everywhere in the city and they do loads of really fun city stuff. Um, so obviously you don't have to be, you don't have to have your little certificate saying Lloyd is a, a freeman and allowed to be an actuary in the city of London anymore. Uh, it's much more ceremonial than that. So what the company does now is, is really um, what we call the three C's, charity, city and community. Um, so it provides a, a strong community for, um, for actuaries, um, particularly for older retired actuaries who've, who've worked their lives in the city and want to stay part of the profession. Um, so a lot get involved in a lot of the activities that we do and, and maintain it almost as a social club. Um, and there's the charity aspect. Um, so we try and keep the charity aspect aligned to the profession as far as possible. So we give a lot of educational bursaries to math students and to actuarial science students. We work with, I think, six or seven different universities to, to offer bursaries to, to third year students there. Um, that's very helpful to those. Um, we do a lot of other sort of outreach programs. There's a, a maths in prison teaching program. Um, that's been supported by the company, um, as well as other charities that sort of actuaries are, are very involved in or have set up. Um, so we're a big supporter of Suited and Booted as well, which is a charity that gives um, suits to people, basically homeless people or people who've fallen on hard times and need to apply for jobs. Um, it helps set them up with suits so they can go to an interview looking smart. Um, so it's it's not an actuarial thing, but it's something that a couple of actuaries have become very involved with over the years. So we've supported that charity. Um, and then finally is city, uh, which is sort of involvement in the, the governance of the city of London. Um, so a lot of people don't know sort of anything about, uh, if I throw out, out words like alderman or the old mayor of the city of London or, or anything like that, people won't know sort of what any of that stuff is. Um, but all the livery companies are involved in that. They all get a vote for the Lord Mayor of the city of London. Um, I was lucky enough uh, a year ago to walk in the Lord Mayor's Parade, which some people might have seen on TV. Um, where the, the history of it goes that when London sort of was first becoming quite independent and strong and wanted to elect its own mayor, uh, the king granted them that right, but said that the mayor has to come to Westminster to present himself to his liege, the king. 
Right. Um, and at this time, the city of London and Westminster were separated by fields. It was a sort of a long walk through wilderness to get there. <laughs> Um, and the Lord Mayor was, was very scared that the king was going to try and kill him on the way. You know, the king still commanded the armies and could just charge his cavalry down. And so all the liverymen decided to, to go with the Lord Mayor uh, while he presented himself. So everyone marched from the city over to Westminster and we sort of replicate that today. Um, so in effect, I was technically guarding the Lord Mayor against the king as he went to Westminster. <laughs> when I went to this march. Um, but it's much more of a tourist thing now. There's cheering crowds, there's, there's floats that the professions put on. Um, so all of the, the sort of ancient ones have very big floats that sort of talk about what they do. There were camels, I think, this year from the grocer's company or the, it might have been the spice merchant's company. Um, so really cool stuff, uh, great thing to be part of. Wow. How did you get into that? Um, <laughs> so it's, op- it's, it's open to any fellow of the Institute Faculty of Actuaries. Um, so you've got to qualify first before you get involved. Um, and actually, they're, they're really looking to grow the members. So if anyone listening wants to, to join, get in touch with me. Um, but essentially, you have to be, be nominated and seconded by an existing member, um, come along to a couple of dinners, learn about what the company does and agree to get involved in all of that and you know have that that charitable aim yourself which most actuaries do anyway um it's a remarkably charitable profession um, particularly sort of internal volunteering within the profession so um yeah they're, they're really keen to sort of get more people in particularly be younger younger actuaries to get involved and and what what would it actually look like what's the sort of time investment and what sort of things would people other than marching through the streets it sounds like a lot of fun what what's yeah they, they might not get to march in the parade we only get three slots a year uh, okay so well they can join the list. list yeah um it's the, the time commitment is whatever people want to make of it, it it's one of those think of it like a professional social club so you can be as involved with it as you want um or you can just just show up for the occasional dinner um, the, the best part of it, I think, is the um, dinners we have sort of five or six times a year uh, because they're all in the livery halls within London. So we have a dinner at Goldsmith's Hall. We have a dinner at Merchant Taylor's Hall, at Playsterer's Hall, which are all sort of really beautifully appointed dining rooms. Um, and you're, you're sat uh, at a, a table with 100 other actuaries, which may be some people's idea of hell, but uh, for me it was very fun and you get some great conversation. They're usually very fascinating people in the, the Worshipful Company as well. So people who are quite senior in their career and do a lot of extra stuff around the side. So it's great to talk to them. Um, but yeah, say so the time commitment's whatever you want to make of it. Some people just show up for the occasional dinner. Some people are a bit more involved and, and a part of one of the committees like myself. Um, some people eventually become the, the senior roles, which are the wardens and the master of the company, um, who are elected every year from, from the company and get to sort of lead, lead the activities for that year. Well, it sounds like a lot of fun. So people can just get in touch with you to find out more. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we have a website as well. Um, just Google Worshipful Company of Actuaries and it'll show up. There's a LinkedIn page that I'm in charge of as well. Cool. I'll, I'll put some links in the, in the show yeah, notes afterwards. Do. And then just to touch on outside of work, you, you mentioned you're into your keen ultra runner and that's taking you around the world. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. Don't really remember when I got started in this. I used to run a lot as a kid. Um, and then actually it, it was with, with some work people um, from Barnet Waddingham. Um, one of my friends there got super into running and started to do these running weekends away sort of all around the UK. So I started joining that and we had a big group of actuaries doing it. Um, and then we decided to go sort of bigger and bolder over time um, and start booking some foreign holidays with runs involved. Um, so, yeah, it's it become sort of a holiday tradition now of I either book a holiday specifically to do a run or I try and find an interesting run if I'm going somewhere on holiday anyway. Um, so I've done a, a marathon in Jamaica that was was very hot and hard work. I can't imagine. Um, we go to Antigua fairly often and I can't, I, I 
my wife went for a run, but I cannot imagine doing anything active in no, the Caribbean. The, the best part was the moment you crossed the line, they gave you a coconut and a beer. Um, <laughs> you lie in the water after that, uh, which was perfect. Yeah. <laughs> um, I did also, I did a, uh, it's usually trail marathons, so running over sort of hills and difficult terrain because that's more fun. Um, so I did a volcano ultra marathon in South Korea. Um, I tried and failed to do one in Italy earlier this year, but I only got 20 kilometers in before having to pull out with sort of heat stroke. Um, did France earlier this year, that was a 30K, did a, a 30K in Austria. Um, to just, you know, yeah, it's part of, my, part of my travel, part of the fun that I do. I either try and watch sport or participate in sport whenever I'm away. Yeah. Brilliant. I, I'm going to sort of try and ask the three questions I usually finish on, but I don't know how some of them you've already answered and one of them, well, you're not in pensions anymore, so we'll see how we go, but we can tailor them. So go go in whichever direction you want. So you, you did touch on this um, earlier on, uh, but what advice would you give? Well, do you know what? You've, you've already answered that question. Um, if someone is applying to jobs, we've talked about you may as well apply for every sector and just see what happens. But if yeah. somebody did want to start to think about actually, am I more suited to pensions or to life insurance, general insurance, risk? Are there certain types of skills that suit different ones or what can people do to, to work out where they should? So first, I'd, I'd caveat my, my earlier comment of you might as well apply to everything with actually it's very important to do very good applications and tailor them. Mm. So a scattergun approach doesn't work, but also the the super refined, I want to work for this company, therefore I will apply there, it also doesn't work. Um, I think like anything, you get better at job applications the more you do. Um, so maybe apply to sort of your, your second and third choices before you apply to your top choice is, is a, a piece of advice. Mm. Um, but I'd say definitely do, you know, do sort of 10 to 20 applications because you can do that many really, really well. Don't do 100, 500, uh, but also don't do one. Um, but then, yeah, if you're starting to see sort of, I, I want to work in this area, what skills should I be looking for? I mean, really, for me, it's less of a less of a subject matter split um, because most of that you learn on the job. So it, if you're looking to work in general insurance, life insurance or pensions, there's no specific skill I'd be looking for. It's more if you want to work in industry versus consulting. That's where you really see a sort of a, a skills and personality split between people. Um, and I think for consulting, the, the key thing really is communication. Um, that is the number one skill. Um, actually, it's, it's probably true of industry as well. But the number one skill is, is communication, but it's far more so in, in consulting, where really the job isn't doing the maths. It's about explaining the maths to other people so that they can make decisions based on it. Um, in industry, people tend to be a lot more technical. Um, so you see a lot more people with coding experience working in industry. Um, it's not that common in, in consulting. You know, most of what I do is actually PowerPoint and a bit of Excel, um, really helping sort of strategic problems rather than the maths. Um, so, you know, if you're, if you're looking to get into industry and you want to do a lot of modeling there, then learning R or Python is really valuable. Um, a lot of the, the university courses actually teach one of those two now. Um, so that's, that's sort of an indication of where the profession's going. Um, then if you have any sort of particular interests around that in, in niche subject areas there's there's so many resources you can look at for reading i mean just climate climate comes to mind since that's where i work um you're definitely starting to see more and more students wanting to see if they can get involved in in climate change sustainability um, and all i would say to them is just go and read about it find out what 
possible companies that you could work for are doing about it. Go and read insurance company TCFD reports. Um, go and read sustainability reports. Go and read the FT and what they're saying about climate change and, and all that stuff. And that will build up your knowledge base so, so much. Yeah. I, I won't ask the question on the future of pensions because that's that's less relevant here. So I'm going to change it completely. And you've touched on what people can do at graduate level. But if, pe- if people are listening to this and they love the way that you talk about working in risk consulting, but they're not in risk consulting, they might be in pensions, they might be in, I don't know, financial reporting, or they could be GI reserving or something, but they, they love what you said and they want to get into your area. What Do they just apply and you'll, you'll hire some of them or, or what, what should they do to you know position themselves? <laughs> if you another 100 clients this year, then yeah, apply to me and hire <laughs> uh, No, I think... Um, Internal transfers are, are often really useful for exploring new area or even sort of doing mini rotations internally. I've talked to a lot of people who sort of started at one part of an insurance company and moved internally to another. You know, every insurance company has a risk function. If you're interested in risk and developing that holistic view, but you're in pricing right now, go and talk to the risk people. You might find the sort of bits where where the reserving team that you work in gets quite quiet, but the risk team gets really, really busy because they're reviewing stuff that the reserving team's done. Ask if you can go and work for them for a few weeks. Mm. Um, Companies are usually really happy to facilitate that kind of stuff because it shows that you're really interested in understanding more than just your own little technical area. Um, And if it comes down to it and you sort of want an internal transfer, most companies would rather keep you in a role that suits you than have you move somewhere else. So people are usually really willing to facilitate that. Yeah. And my final question is, what are you looking forward to in the next 12 months? And that can be work, it can be personal, it can be one of each. Yeah, okay. Um, got an interesting one. So pers- personal-wise, um, I'm going to Australia for the first time in my life this Christmas. Um, so I've been dating an Australian girl for, God, almost two years now. Um, so we decided Christmas is my my time to go over and visit her family for the first time. Yeah, I'm getting very excited for that because it's getting quite close now uh, especially as the the weather has sort of just turned into something very very cold thinking about summer christmas is, is quite nice how are you with snakes and spiders and things like that yeah not not so good on that um don't like snakes spiders and sharks <laughs> um, but i like barbecue so pros and cons um and in, in the professional life i mean just continuing to expand my my climate knowledge um there's there's a really big piece of work that I'm excited to get to grips with soon that I, I don't think I can say what it is yet because I don't think we've done our, our press release yet. Um, but probably by the time this podcast goes out, if you Google Crow press releases, you'll see it. Okay. Um, and I'm very excited about working working on that because that's going to allow me to help a lot of companies really tackle their approach to, to how they approach climate risk. Um, so that's going to be a, a fantastic project. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time. And um, we've, we've, we've mentioned this before, but um, if, if people do want to reach out and uh, and get in contact with you, is LinkedIn the best way? Or Yeah, LinkedIn. I'm, I'm quite easy to find on LinkedIn. I'm very active on there. So I'm usually the first Lloyd Richards that comes up. Um, it's a, a, not a completely unique name, but fairly unusual. So people should be able to find me. Yeah. Well, again, I'll, I'll, I'll put links to that to make it easy for, for people to find. But, um, but no, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for, for taking the time today. And uh, I wish you all the best. Likewise. Thank you for having me on. Really appreciate it. I look forward to listening to it later. Thanks for listening to this episode of Actuarial People. Please don't forget to subscribe and consider leaving a review. If you have any questions or feedback or any suggestions for future guests, please contact me on info at actuarialpeople.com. This podcast is sponsored by my recruitment company, Turner Perkins. 
and you can contact me there at james.turner at turnerperkins.com. Hope to see you again.